Welcome to another episode of A Pint with Shawnee B. Coming to you today, would you believe, from Istanbul in Turkey. I'm actually in a bar called the Bosphorus Brewing Company. And I have a very interesting and peripatetic guest with me. A man who works here now, but has lived and worked all over the world, and still does work all over the world. This is just his, his base. His name is Stephen Fraser. He's a business development director of Ogilvy and Mather and works on primarily Pizza Hut and Yum Brands, which includes KFC, and he's in charge of that globally. But he's had, how long have you been with um, Ogilvy? Been with Ogilvy since 1984. Ogilvy is one of probably the only real agencies out there at the moment who have lifers, who have a lot of people who've been there for a long time and have been looked after. Yes, I think looked after for me is not necessarily in the material way, I have to say, although that's okay. I can afford to buy a pint of beer for for Shawnee here. I think looked after for me has been that I'm now living in my ninth country, and I think looked after in that respect has been that that I've had a kind of sense of new adventure Mm. and new discover every three to five years, and I think that passion for an inquisitiveness and a passion for discovery and new yeah. cultures and new things is is what's really been my goal and mm. mission and I suppose in that respect yes I've, I've been looked after Tell me a little bit about first of all maybe let's go on your life journey where, where are you from and uh, where, were you, where were you born? Yeah so I was born um, in London based in a famous place called Wimbledon uh, from a Scottish father and a Swiss-French mother, which means that I'm half Scottish, quarter Swiss, quarter English, which, if you research carefully, is exactly the same nationality as a famous character of whom I resemble, and that's James Bond. Uh, he does look a little bit like James Bond, but maybe in his <laughs> autumn years. Yes, uh, I know what you mean. So, for perhaps the rest of the podcast, we'll just do James Bond impressions, <laughs> yes. Miss Money. Yes, well, I think I will add to that, in that my father was in the Foreign Office, and his security number was Peter Fraser, zero. Zero seven. There you go. Look at that. There you go. So, was, growing up in Wimbledon, were you sneaking under the uh, tennis? We were. We went there every. I guess I started playing tennis when I was three or four. Right. As people meet me and they say, "Where are you from?" and I say, "Wimbledon." They say, "When do you want a game?" Not, not how good are you or, or do you play? So, tell me what was college like and how were you in school? You, you seem like a bright fellow. Well, I, I, I don't know whether I was academically very bright. I was probably sort of more inquisitively bright yeah. and, and wanted to do things uh, the way I wanted to do them. So, I don't say I rebel against teachers, but I, I certainly I sort of tried to learn in a very different way. Yeah. And in fact, in the end, I ended up going not to university. I got into a couple of universities. I went to a polytechnic. And the pure reason was that those days, polytechnics offered very good vocational, practical um, yeah, approaches. Yeah. And most importantly, and I think this is where things started to kick off, with a year overseas. I was doing uh, international marketing and and French. The third year was working a work experience. In France? Nope, it was actually in Brussels. I probably got the best of the lot. I got the headquarters of Levi's for Europe. Their agency at that time was McCann, and I was on the client side. In fact, after a year of doing that, the guys at McCann said, you know, we kind of like your attitude. Um, Would you come and work for us? And they actually offered me a job in Brussels brilliant and I actually said no okay um, I probably need to firstly if I'm going to join the, the ad brigade I'll start in London secondly I 
probably should finish my degree. I owe it to my dad, if nothing but else. That was the, the money seed that was sown. Uh, that was the seed that was sown, and I was picked up by McCann's in London and great. started there. Right. And then I worked on some international business, and I think it was from there that I was headhunted by Ogilvy to come and work on their international, at that time as their new client, which was Parker Pens. And yeah. So I joined January the 1st, 1984, and so I really, I guess, started to get on the global train. I remember the at that time the CEO of Ogilvy London coming to me and saying you've been working a lot with the Middle East we have a joint venture there and we want to Ogilvyize the joint venture partners so we can you know buy them and can you go there and and help to do that and the Middle East was on the radar and I suppose I had a slightly uh, I always call it kind of pioneering Indiana Jones attitude yeah. which was if I ever asked myself the question I wonder what it would have been like I should go and do it and I thought well I could say no but then I'm three months later I, I would have said I wonder what it would have been like so it's better to answer the question well, one of the things about the, the podcast is trying to learn these lessons that you've learned from life I'm usually yes. waiting for the end but that's one of the things that I would also agree with you the things that scared me the most that I did were the things that in hindsight were the best things yeah ever. and I think you've got to let the got to let the answer yeah. you know come through experience and as it was I had a fabulous time I landed just before the Gulf War started so I was in Bahrain right. and I was running the office there and then I got moved to Dubai so that's place number four so Brussels London yeah, Dubai no. Bahrain I uh, was just under 30 the Gulf War came in when we were in Bahrain so we were sealed off there happened to be about 850 Gulf Air stewardesses also trapped in the same nice, place nice. so just through sheer charity and, I and hospitality, some of them in and we, we did. But actually, they looked after us because okay. we still had to work, and and they you didn't. could bring them in and give them a bed, and they would bring you breakfast. In the <laughs> yeah, maybe they did exactly. But there, there was a slightly serious note in that the sirens would go off whenever the scuds were coming in, and two or three of them were awake, and then they would call two more and two more and two more. Yeah. And for us who were actually having to work, it was actually being slightly serious for a moment it was a life-saving system it was quite scary, um, yeah. yeah it was a bit scary you didn't know quite what's going to happen with all our gas masks even watching it on tv it was it was the first war yeah. that was like almost a video game and those scuds looked like they didn't know what they did well, very well named they look like really d- dense yeah well i mean the the americans as you remember missed a lot of them yes <laughs> and um i just remember the first day it all kicked off it was january 17th my dad calling me from home and saying so what's happening and I live quite near the airport and I yeah. said well listen to this and I put the phone out the window yeah. and the, the distant the, tank fire well no it was just the, the jets going off on their first um, on their first oh, sorties right. to Baghdad and yeah. it was quite intense and you, you after a while we got a bit sort of blasé about it but yeah. that didn't stop you know parents and relations obviously being a yeah. bit more concerned so one couldn't say oh don't worry mum it's alright and, and we're going out for a beer because we were going out for beers yeah and, but there were a couple of incidents that had to make you I love the idea of like, oh, the new billboard campaign just got bombed to shit. just got bombed to, Well, no, we had much worse things than that. And then our favourite Italian restaurant, we went in there as a group in our favourite Italian restaurant, and the Italian owner came running up and said, disaster, guys, you know, disaster. We said, oh, my God, the wine cellar's been blown up. And we probed and we pushed and we all sat down. He said, listen, I've just run out of fresh asparagus. Oh, Jesus. We all got up and promptly left. That is a war-torn environment. environment. Um, In in better news, your we won't smell as much as That is is exactly right. So we had to go for the Osabuco instead. Um, So that was an adventure. uh, So this was 91 you were there. Yeah, and then went to Dubai when it was sort of being born. Dubai is interesting. We talk about that for a bit because I just came. I, I was in Dubai last week for about four or five days first time there and uh, 
It reminded me of like a drunk guy who's got three hundred billion dollars to spend as fast as possible on skyscrapers. Yes, and yes. he's duly doing so. Yes. Um, what's the? What, you're closer to it. Is there any truth in that? In those days, when I West went there, it was really being born. And if everyone's a conspiracy theory that sort of CNN and the Americans actually invented Dubai, yes. because actually that's what happened is that Bahrain was really the centre of the financial. World of, of, world of the Arab yeah, world, yeah. Of the, well, the Gulf world, and particularly right. maybe not the Arab world, um, and then everybody f- deserted to, to to Dubai, and Dubai was really born out of the commerce that that then brought. Because remember, Dubai's got no oil, Abu Dhabi's yeah. got the oil, yeah. Qatar's got oil, Kuwait's got oil, Saudi's yeah. got oil, but Dubai doesn't really happen. It's so it relied on huge port, the duty-free aspect of it, which is the Jebel Ali port, you yeah. might have heard of that, and then making it a magnificent place for people to do business and, and to work. And The Maktoum family. The Maktoum family, and I have to say that the vision of, of the Maktoum family was yeah. incredible, yeah. And, and out of the desert came, came Dubai, yeah. and I think what you see is maybe not particularly deep, but the thought behind it was, is, is brilliant. It, it, it felt a little bit like the, the same kind of vision that Lee Kuan Yew had for Singapore, which yes. was like, but, but I felt that the, the Singapore thing, you can sort of see the planning, you can feel what they're trying to do, you can see the kind of vague cultural thing that they have going and keeping... The one thing on. that Singapore has very differently, it has a colonial past. I mean, of people course, have been yeah, there yeah. in a history, so it has a legacy that people have built you, upon if you've been to Bangalore or Mumbai well yeah and, and, and Delhi there's no guarantee there's no guarantee but at least it's a slightly different way whereas Dubai was a vision of one man you know yeah, one yeah, family yeah. they've created this this mega city which I have to say is is a fantastic place to live yeah. as long as you're not looking for, for too much historical uh, yeah. antiquities to yeah. go and explore we as Eddie has said we restored this car park to the way it looked over 20 years ago yes yes <laughs> yes that's absolutely right but you can do things I mean the one of the beautiful things about Dubai is, is the desert I mean it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the desert is a beautiful place and I've been out there at night and I've camped overnight and I've thrown a snowboard down a dune mountain so it's got all of that adventure four wheel drives and all that innovation is never far from yeah. from their thought and this is this pays respect to the kind of Arab culture and doesn't make the Arab look so dependent on oil and I think where the UAE as a country and Dubai in particular stands out is that they've put the Arab character and personality in a place mm. rather than just say it's a bunch of people who are going to just thrive off oil because they don't have any oil yeah when you look at the you know, stagnation at best, decline maybe at worst of major European countries. How much of this do you think is as a result of democracy versus, uh, you know, an iron fist from one man? Lee Kuan Yew, you know, you talk about Singapore as being sort of, people talk about it as being... Yeah, Mahathir in, in Malaysia. Mahathir, this guy, you know, as long as it's benign and coming at it from a good place rather than a Hitler-esque place, yes. it often works because it's like somebody goes, look, let's fucking get it done, I, I want it to work well. Well, I think you're sitting in a country that's going through that debate at the moment. You know, the president here has got lots of strengths and the yeah. one strength that he has is that he does understand the people and we are only sitting by the way in Istanbul where you know less than a quarter of the population live but the people over on the other side in Antalya um, Anatolia sorry that's what he understands he understands what they want now nobody necessarily supports the way in which he's done it he doesn't always say the right thing but there is some sort of good to come out of it in that 
firstly he's got no com competition who can do that and secondly he's earned the respect of an awful lot of people around here now I don't agree and my wife who is Turkish doesn't always agree with everything he mm. says and maybe some people say oh he's so he's this he's that mm. he's whatever but you know as long as the iron fist doesn't become too much made of iron a gloved hand can still be a useful a useful thing um, you mentioned when we sat down that, that this place most reminded you of Thailand yeah and so there's a tax and similar similarity there I well. think there's a tax and similarity I think the Thai comparison come it's maybe a slightly different angle I didn't saw the tax and one but a slightly different angle in that Turkey is very parochial it's very very Turkish mm. sounds silly but that's mm. what it is and no one should disrespect that so when you come and do business here you better learn how to speak the language and I think the same okay, happens well, in time get out of Bangkok though he was giving cows and sheep out to yes. the people in the, in the that's regions right. you know that's and that right. was how he's winning the votes that's right but if you look at the Thai culture Thai culture is very strong as is Turkish yes. culture yeah. and people doing business there as far or less expat favours you know expats yeah. are being hounded to some degree yeah. and we have a lot less expats in our office than we used yeah. to have it and yet on the other side a bit like turkey you go to the resorts and the tourism industry yeah. and they welcome everybody yeah so going back to the iron fist thing i think yes there are some governments that have that however there needs to be healthy opposition mm. <laughs> so my iron fist bit is slightly qualified in that you can't just do it on your own you need other people to have a voice and be mm. accountable and um how important do you feel is uh, one of the other roles i think turkey and to a lesser uh, probably to a similar extent egypt has to play is this sort of role in the in, in, in the sort of Islamicism, rise of ISIS, etc. in the region. Where, where do you see all that from being close to the ground here? I know it's, it's a tricky question. It's a tricky question and one I maybe be, be, have to be a bit sensitive yeah, about. Sure. I mean, you obviously, don't, talk about it, don't worry, I mean, obviously everybody is, is, is frightened of this. And it's not just about ISIS, it's a more fundamental movement that, mm. that the kind of whole Islamic world yeah, is, wants, is, to is try, wants to maybe try and create. The mm. question is, is how fundamental they're going to buy and be and pushing it back against the way in which other people live versus mm. the way in which they live and if they don't accept that then that's going to be a problem but if they do accept it and ISIS at the moment is not accepting it you speak to people in Turkey who are much more moderate yeah. by the way they don't feel that ISIS are really part of their religion they don't no, feel that aligned to that some of the Egyptians I've spoken to as well they're also strong countries who have people who go look you know we like when, when people say Islam is a peaceful religion it's like saying you know Christianity I suppose is a peaceful religion which at its core it is as well but there's yes. plenty of crap in the Bible yes. that kind of nicely pushed to one side that's right and I think what we need to do as a, as a sort of um, you know non-Muslim people is not get hysterical about this but also understand that there's a difference between being a Muslim and being an Islamicist yes and also being a jihadist mm. yeah and so we're narrowing down every time we go right yes. on, that, on that thing and yes. I think certainly walking around here and you know even even in Dubai and also Muscat where I was and I'm going to Sarajevo tomorrow when, when you visit these places you see actually it's not all mental okay but I also feel that it's beholden on you know if Ireland was suddenly this kind of mental kind of we're going to go and behead people all the way down yes. to Jerusalem and take it back for the Irish monks or something you know yes. uh, we get shut down yes yeah, quite, you would pretty do. quickly by as long as the Guinness factory doesn't close yeah, yeah, I think that's the main would take over that's, that yeah exactly that's, 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 that's kind of one of the main things that we Want, we'd want another yeah, Rosa Tralee, yeah, 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 exactly, and, and, and a couple, couple of other pieces, bits and pieces. No, and I think the attitude here is that it's always been a very moderate state, you know, yeah. um, 
Kamal Ataturk set it up like that. Yeah. He's, he was he was very much a supporter of you know non headscarves and respected the Muslim I love religion. There's a, great, there's a great story about him when when he was trying to work out how he could modernize to the removal of headscarves yeah. and stuff. And apparently he said, uh, I don't know if you've heard this story, but he's the, the, the idea that came up with was everybody can or cannot wear a headscarf, but mm. the people who must wear it are prostitutes. Have you heard this? No. That was his solution. So he said, basically, if you want to wear a headscarf, you can, but the people who have to wear them are prostitutes. And that was his way of That's getting very interesting. To their headscarves off, because suddenly people, well, I'm not wearing I'm not one of them, <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm not one. But, I mean, he stood for that, and I think where the clash is coming is that there's a feeling that some of the values that he espoused of what is a pure... Muslim religion existing within some democratic yeah. modernist society and now being pushed against yeah. by something that's more fundamental and more with an iron fist and I think so, that's where the clash is coming. It's not about a clash between Muslims it's quite a clash in the way in which people are expressing it so yeah, the current yeah. regime versus his regime mm. and, and a lot of people would say you shouldn't change the guy who founded where we are no, I mean I Turkey would not exist if it, if it well, was he would be he would be seen as a, an enemy of ISIS. Well, he would be absolutely yeah. in a way, and uh, he'd certainly be seen as not as an enemy, but certainly an opposition to the the, the current, you know, the current regime. Mm. But people's respect for him remains huge. He has yeah. his own day. A lot of the initiatives he founded, his support particularly for children. There's yeah. a Children's Day here, which is massive. The liberalisation of women, yeah. <laughs> you know, all of that is something that. It's the two countries, I mean, that I'm most impressed with, because even like you know, it's not it's not quite the same in Indonesia, but like certainly Egypt, yes. Egypt or Cairo, yes, and, and Istanbul are, are two really progressive. Yes. Like their people here are smart and they kind of get yes. it, and they're not like. Yeah. Well, they are. They're very smart people. I mean, the global CEO of and chairman CEO of Coca-Cola is Turk. Yeah, I mean, yeah, not many yeah, people realise yeah. that. And actually, up until a year ago, his number two was as well. So, yeah. the two most powerful people on the world's biggest brand were, were, were Turkish, and they're also, you know, in the literary world, in the arts yeah. world. Um, I'm not sure about the music. I'm not a great fan of Turkish music, but certainly those, you know, there's there's Nobel prizes for literature. Yeah. The problem is, is will this sort of more fundamental approach this happening at the moment will that quash some of that yeah. and there's a number of Turkish people that are very talented that are saying I don't want to stay in Turkey anymore yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to move overseas the education system sucks the, yeah. the whole shift in the religion is moving so you've got to watch the next there's a certain amount years. of also not interfering do you agree with that? Like, there's a certain amount of, yeah, we're our thing, and they're their thing, and someone else is someone else's thing, and the Chinese are their thing. There's a certain amount of just work it out yourselves. Guys. Yeah, well, that's what they should do, but this is where the iron fist comes in, because yeah. if you're not allowed to be democratic in the way in which you do that, yeah. the iron fist will just tell you what to do. Well, I meant, get... I meant the other Sorry, iron no. fist, the iron fist of America or the West. Oh, I see, okay. to fear and just go, look, guys, sort it out. No, yeah. that's absolutely right, but I think what they're trying to do is protect to... Protect the royal. Uh, protect, yeah, they're trying to... And also, because Turkey borders eight countries yeah, seven of which has problems yeah. and, and clearly Syria is, is an important connection but uh, maybe that's for another conversation rather than me we're not going to solve the uh, Middle East problem we're not going to solve the Middle East crisis at the but, moment uh, no. no as long as the command one of the things I do believe is that we need to talk about it. we need to be prepared yes. to talk about Islam and Muslims and they need to be able to talk back to us and give us their point of view without hacking our heads off or us blowing them up yeah. so anyway we'll move on from that you left the Middle East to go yes, to Asia to Asia was to Korea you went to? I went to Korea, yes, I went to Seoul. So we survived the Middle East War, the next thing that turned up was mini-submarines from North Korea <laughs> yes, yes. crashing on the rocks of South now Korea. Now explain so thought, that to people who don't remember. 
North Korea, as you know, and South Korea have yeah. what they call an armistice. They don't actually yeah. have a treaty. So technically they're still at war. Yeah. I think there are 250,000 mines that lie between the two countries. North Korea is a, what they call the hermit kingdom, although not very hermetic in the sense that uh, the Kim Jong-un and yeah. Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-sun, who are the three presidents, have always been fairly vociferous. So I've actually been up to the border, and, and as an American tourist sat next to me on the way back, which is Pyongyang, he said, um, oh God, that was so boring, you know, it was kind of quiet. And I said, actually, that's the point. <laughs> the point is the uh, tension. You could like almost cut movie. Exactly. You could almost <laughs> cut it with a knife. You right. know, you can fit. And these guys stand there half behind a yeah, building. Yeah, yeah. And you can see the North Koreans, with, yeah. symbolized by their very large caps, looking down, and the, and the rock soldiers, which are the North Korean, South Korean soldiers All on the border. it takes some guy to get an epileptic fit with a machine gun. Oh, uh, it, yeah. it'll be, it'll be, it'll be, uh, I hate to think of the consequences. They could be, they reckon they could be in Seoul within an hour, and there are a lot of them around. And by the way, if you're South Korea, on the South Korean side, you're not allowed to wear shorts or thongs, because... The North Korean propaganda will then say, look at the South, they can't even afford to finish Pants. their trousers. Yeah. <laughs> um, and look, they don't even wear socks. So um, it's a huge thing. I think the funniest thing is the, is the flags. So the, two of the biggest flags in the world are there. And the, the South Korean one looks at the North Korean one and says, we need to make ours a centimetre bigger. And the North Koreans made theirs a centimetre bigger. And actually, it. eventually one of them, and I don't know which one, actually collapsed because it was, Too big. It was becoming so big. Yes. That's hilarious. Yes. I never knew that. So the North Koreans supposedly... Uh, sent down spy submarines, these mini subs into right. South Korean waters. Is that like a one-man submarine? Is it a mini? Is it they're a called mini subs. I, yes, it's sort of a padello with a cover on the top, just in case you you go under. And they were found. Well, some were beached on the rocks, but some of them were found. And I have to say, I, I can't remember the full story, but. Yeah. Um, it was a bit of tension so straight out of the Gulf War into that was meant well you know obviously Brilliant. this is going to follow me around for the rest of my yeah. life and in Seoul I had a wonderful experience the mm. Koreans were terrific they will either reject you yeah. or they will stand in front of a bullet for you there's wow. no kind of inter- in, in, in between yeah. ground fantastic food culture did you eat like dogs? Uh, I, not that I know of and apparently the sign is if you eat dog and you go out in the streets other dogs will come and sniff you because they can smell yes. the dog coming through so that never They're happens not eat you no, they won't eat you. No, they won't yeah. think you're a dog. They'll just sniff other dogs. They might cock you your leg against you, but then we'll <laughs> <laughs> try and mate you. Yeah. Yes, exactly, on your shoe. It was a fascinating journey. I was there about three years, just under three years, and, you know, the sport was good, the, the climate was great, the skiing was fantastic. So we're now, like, in your mid-30s? Yeah, so now mid-30s. No, 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 no. Met, met the future Mrs. Fraser there, as they okay. call it, the FMF. She was working for BAT, she was marketing director, not a client, I hasten right. to add. And at the end of career, we were sort of together, but not together, so to speak. And, and she came back, she's actually Turkish, and she came back to Turkey. And I went on to my next challenge, which was to run our group in the Philippines. Mm. Uh, which I which, also looked after for such. Oh, so right, have, okay, so we have a common have, ground there. The Philippines, if anyone who listening to this has committed a murder, needs to hide, needs to get out of the way of Interpol, that is the place to go. In my view, you could walk into the Philippines with a fake passport made out of crayons that says that your name is Mickey Mouse, and as long as there was a couple of hundred dollars in there, you'd be allowed However, it. However, since the recent elections, this certain Mr. Duarte has promised that capital punishment will happen to anyone who commits crimes, particularly um, you know, extortion, robbery, theft, murder, and they will shoot them on sight. Uh, and he was the ex-mayor of Mindanao, which was the problem island in the south, and that's what he did. Right. And there's one accusation levelled against him is that he had these death squads who were out there basically you know, popping people off. So 
here in Philippines, and he's also threatened curfews. We're, uh, we're entering an iron fist Philippines. Well, absolutely, we're back to the Marcos era, interestingly, and I think populist Philippines actually quite like that, because mm. then they see that as a more democratic distribution of Family wealth. Family friendly. Well, also distribution of wealth. Yeah. I mean, they're going to get something that that only the rich and they're very very rich and by the way they are very rich and particularly the Chinese very rich yeah. um, having the Philippines a wonderful time in the Philippines and the people there just saw the glasses half full I remember there used to be a railway line that went down the middle of Manila and people's lives were on this railway yeah, line yeah. and they used to have those old bogey carts that they sort of pushed up and down yeah, yeah. and that was the grocery van and then when the 213 came in, obviously everybody had to lift off the stuff. So I consider when we were playing football as kids going car, it was like train. Exactly, train coming, <laughs> and, and their whole life just shut the door. But then what they did in the Philippines is that they built apartments near the railway line, spanking brand new, yeah. and offered them for free, running water, da da da. And they all said no. Yeah, well, you know, don't mess with our lives. This is what we've lived up with. We're happy with a corrugated iron shack. The problem is, is that we come at it with a with a lens that is our lens, and yeah. we actually never put on the lens of their lens. Mm. And actually, if they looked to, if they looked at our world, they'd probably think it's ridiculous. I think a lot of the anger and irritation that Westerners, expats, America, big Western governments cause Asian, African countries is this kind of just desire to impose it maybe it goes yes. back to the colonial times but yes. it's desire to constantly impose you're thinking on us and it's like we don't think that way no and I think that's totally wrong and I think the Asian Asia's fighting back <laughs> And I think there's a feeling sort of belittlement. It's like, yeah. you know, who who are they? Yeah. Whereas we're wealthy, big Western well, if our powers. lives were perfect and we didn't have marriage breakup yes. and we had very happy children and we all didn't go to shrinks and we didn't have the whole world economy collapsing around us like yes. a flan in the cupboard every now yes. and then. Yes, we may have a point. Yes. But they could always go, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. We do... We do we, we do a lot of things. We do a lot of things better. We do a lot of things better. You know, having lived through those Asian countries, I learned much more when I was east than I was west. I agree <laughs> about life. You yeah. know, and and the Philippines certainly taught me about humility. Explain um, that a bit so, more. So humility is. I think the Philippines is a very underrated country. I think the Philippines should have been probably the center of Asia. If you think geographically, yeah. it's halfway between kind of Hong Kong and Singapore. In a way, it's halfway between. Japan and Thailand it's the most English speaking at that mm-hmm. time and yet it's never got up to that status now that could be a criticism but at the same time I, the Philippines are very humble people they're, yeah. they're, they never try and kind of push themselves in front of you but they're very happy to join in and they're very happy to teach and they're very happy to learn and they it was just a wonderful wonderful experience and the joy and the kind of celebrity nature of them. They're the best karaoke singers and impersonators yes, yes. in the world. And I'm sorry, the Koreans, but you, you may find that hard. <laughs> now, there was a slight dark side mm. in the Iron Fist. Mm. And, and I was there when there was a coup. I was about to close the, the office when um, Estrada, the Arab, as they yeah. called him, was sort of being in prison and, there, and there, were, there were sort of Molotov cocktails starting to fly around and, this, okay. and we were right on the street. And then he got arrested and taken away and you know what happened? You know, the, the opposition guys would sort of come out and shake hands with each other. It was almost like this was a game of soccer. Take their bag of yeah, rice because they'd all been told, yeah. well, they'd all been told, you do this side. So the reds, blues, I can't remember the colours yeah. were. So it made it all, and they were making a joke a bit, so it was quite 
funny. They were almost yeah. making a joke of the joke. Until but that next was a bit time. of being until, until, until next time, time. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, we'll see you soon. But what nobody wanted was a kind of another Marcos era type yeah, of yeah. type of approach. It's interesting to see what the latest election. It's one of, when we talked earlier about letting countries kind of get on with it. It's one of those that's really tried to do that. Well, I think that's a very um, good point. Nobody's interfered there. Mm. I think to a large extent that's been the same with, with, with Korea and I think yeah. it's been the same with Japan yeah. and look how they've progressed. I think the Philippines have been left select. They're very sympathetic, yeah, they're yeah. very, very kind and I think this is largely found a little bit not only in their character but also their religion. They are Catholic, yeah. <laughs> but in the nice Catholic way. I don't mean Catholic <laughs> yeah. in the strictest flagellate themselves way. Yeah. But, uh, but perhaps So where did you go after Malaysia. Ah, okay. Another Muslim country. So I'd now been through the what Middle East. What year are we in now? 97. The end of Mahathir's reign. And the Malaysian so crisis. Yep. And very much the Malaysian crisis. crisis. seems to follow you everywhere Exactly. You go, well, so. this is it. Yeah. So we had Gulf War, mini-subs, coups, yeah. and yeah. now, you know, Mahathir had been there for a long time and, yeah. and still is very vocal. My gosh, some people yeah. feel, feel he's there. So Malaysia was an interesting experience. I, I really enjoyed it. I think this coming together of three different yeah. races and it really is I can't think of another place in the world that Singapore and Malaysia yeah, is yeah. truly well even Singapore is still dominated by Rural the kind of Chuni yeah. Chinese base yeah. whereas Malaysian I mean Malays Indians yeah, and yeah. Chinese they, well, they had riots up until like the 80s and they still yeah. it's still not flares a, up, yeah. yeah it still flares up and it's still plus you know, their outlets. little sultanates you know? yeah absolutely plus it has no the sultanates really yeah. like, and they rotate yeah. so the sultan rotates but it's a wonderful country. It's mm. a beautiful country. It's um, got some. It's got the oldest forest in the world. It's yeah. probably got some of the nicest golf courses in the world. Yeah. Some of the best diving in the world. And the food is just. Yeah. To, I think is arguably the best in Asia. And just before Malaysia, I got married. Yeah, so I got married to the the Turk. Yes. And took her with me to Malaysia. So Malaysia was interesting from that point of view. Um, Where did you go after there? And Malaysia, then on Hong Kong out of Hong Kong where I met some of the people you mentioned yeah. earlier on and um, also two small people so two small people ah, came along yeah, yeah. twin twins yeah right. twin uh, boy names? and girl Ben Adam and, and Maya Sophie so I got one of one of each right. and they're now uh, seven and a half it, it was great and we absolutely loved Hong Kong and if you ask me which is the place out of all of the ones I've mentioned that I'd probably most like to go back to really? it, it would be there yes okay. and Hong Kong has that little element, a bit like Thai, the way they mix kind of, a bit like here actually, it does, it does, they it mix does. modernity and, and, and history very well together. And then you came to Turkey after And that. then I came to Turkey after that. So yeah. after, so that's that's whole, after this mental sort of career and around the world and traveling and running big business, what are the kind of two or three lessons that you've learned that like, one of the things of the podcast is passing stuff back yeah. to, to, the future, to the previous you. I go back to the first thing I said earlier, if you're ever going to ask the question I wonder what it would have been like for yeah. God's sake don't yeah. let that pass I, the second thing is to find a way to immerse yourself completely food allows you to do that music allows you to do that some of the other performing arts dress whatever it might yeah. be and I'd say the third thing is for me is if you are moving around a lot you've got to be totally committed to doing what you're going to do don't think of the next move while you're in the previous move even if you're here you're going to be moving in three months people will sense that and the world is not about the west to your earlier point it's about you know west east middle north south whatever and each has their own culture allow them to live that when i first went to singapore my my good friend charles anderson who's very erudite 
six foot eight Englishman said to me, Sean, you've just got to understand that the Chinese hate to lose face. Under no circumstances should you let a Chinese person lose face. <laughs> and I said, what about the fucking English? Yes, yes. So but isn't it about time they did it? He yes, said, exactly. you're the worst at losing Yeah, they going to say, know, yeah. Hot calling the kettle. hooliganism, Falkland hot, Islands, hot, Ireland, etc. Hot et calling the kettle black. No, you're not yeah, taking absolutely. that off us. Before we finish, your views on the future of the world for your two small kids? I think it's going to be tough. I think they're going to live in a different world for if they're going to live in an online world for yeah. a start, a global world, because it's going to be connected. So... We're encouraging them to learn languages, <laughs> yeah. to learn cultures, and yeah. actually them being part of this culture. I think competition will get tougher and tougher. Kids they're competing with are the Koreans and the Chinese, and I tell you what, yeah. they're a lot better than a lot of other Western kids. Um, about from a humanity point of view? Like so interesting, the first World Humanitarian Summit has just happened here. That was a big statement. I don't know what's come out of that, but I mean, I'm clearly, everybody's massively concerned. I mean, that's a very facile statement, but I... I want our kids to be as responsible as that. The Turks, to be perfectly honest, are not great at doing that. There are some individual pockets where yeah. they are aware that things need to get better mm. in terms of polluting the world, and I use yeah. that in the broadest sense. Kids have got to understand, I guess, two things. One is technology in its purest form, and the second thing is, is, is environment. And, and if I was to give them two themes, that's what I would give them to work on. See, and Fraser, it's a great place to end it. A man who has travelled the world and clearly picked up an awful lot of wisdom and ideas and thoughts about how we will perform as people going forward. Thank you very much for coming on A Pint with Shawnee B. Best of luck in the future. Thank and you. Look after Pleasure. Yourself, mate. Thank you. Thank you.